I want to know what the fuck this is all about. I gave you 48 hours to come up with something and the clock's running. Yeah, well, maybe I don't like the way you asked me, all right? Who gives a goddamn what you like? You're just a crook on a weekend pass. You're not even a goddamn name anymore. But get this, man. We ain't brothers, we ain't partners, and we ain't friends. And if Dan gets away with my money, you're going to be sorry you ever met me. I'm already sorry. Welcome to Now Playing's 48 Hours Movie Retrospective Series. I don't work like this, no deal. Listen, we ain't got no deal, I own your ass. No goddamn way to start a partnership. Hosted by Arnie. Look at you, you got a $500 suit on, you're still a low life. Yeah, but I look good. Stuart. You really are hopeless. That's what I always And Jacob. See how you need me a little more than you thought, huh, Mr. Kate? This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Jack, tell me a story. Fuck you. Oh, that's one of my favorites. Listener discretion is advised. Bullshit attitude and experience is what gets you through. Come on. Come on and experience some of my bullshit. Today... We're discussing another 48 Hours, starring Eddie Murphy, Nick Nolte, directed by Walter Hill. This is the now playing co-host with a history of stepping over the line, Arnie. And Stuart. This is Jacob. And guys, I've been having a very bad day. I just got out of jail this morning. Already been shot at. My bus flipped over 17 times. Bitch tried to stab me in the bathroom. Somebody blew up my Porsche. Now I got to talk about this movie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, Walter Hill did make the joke. They already made a sequel to 48 Hours. It's called Beverly Hills Cop. But I think that Eddie Murphy owed Paramount something after they greenlit his vanity project, Harlem Nights. Yeah, because this is like eight years later, right? Actually, Eddie went to Paramount and said, I have a story idea. Let's get the gang back together. Let's do another 48 Hours. This is his fault? I'm sure that it was, his story idea was, you pay me $14 million, (laughs) and then I can make an extension on my Bubble Hill mansion. And he contacted Walter Hill and said, you know, here's my story, are you interested? And Hill was like, well, if it doesn't work, what have I got to lose? And he thought Eddie Murphy's story was interesting, and agreed, and there's no story why Nick Nolte came back, I guess. He didn't have to put an extension on his house. He just had to make a house payment. We talked about it last week, but obviously Eddie Murphy's career was launched into the stratosphere and he had a string of mostly giant hits. There was his third movie that nobody remembers called Best Defense with Dudley Moore. But other than that, they were all profitable films. He came back to host SNL when Beverly Hills Cop came out in late 84. So he'd only been off the show for a few months. And he made a joke about he made... 48 hours, people loved it, made trading places, people loved it, made best defense, and if we saw the paycheck he'd been written, you'd have made best defense too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but for the most part, he was one of the most bankable stars of the 1980s, 
And yeah, they let you, if you want to write, direct, produce, star in some 1930s gangster flick with uh, your comic idol Richard Pryor and Harlem Nights, you know, I think it made some money, but it stung Eddie Murphy that he got really a lot of bad critical notices. He got Razzie nominations and the feeling that I can do anything. It's also worth pointing out he put out his second album with Put Your Mouth on Me. And like, I think people were just thinking that he had gotten too big for his britches. His bright red leather britches? Yes. Maybe it was time for him to go back to something safe and formula. Another 48 hours. Let's do it again. Yeah. When you look at the credits, there's a writer named Fred Rotten. That's Eddie Murphy using a pen name so that he could get story credit and not be Eddie Murphy. Rotten, is is that how he felt after seeing the final edit? Broughton. B-R-A-U-T-H. And you know, that was one of the jokes about Harlem Nights was like, you watch the credits and every credit is like, Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy. It's not surprising that he would come up with a stage name for a writing credit because, you know, again, his name was all over that flop. Or at least that critical punching bag what was so great about the story idea that they all wanted to sign on they didn't say because <laughs> <laughs> nick nolte like he kind of it was interesting for him he did a lot of like dramas that didn't make much money but he did have a few comic hits down and out in beverly hills and three fugitives with martin short had been mildly successful touchstone pictures he was still a star although not the same caliber of star Walter Hill had had a lot of bombs, and I think Walter Hill needed another 48 hours the most of the three. Which is probably why he felt he had nothing to lose. But this is a film, unlike 48 Hours, where I was able to read daily diaries of people on the set and find out so much, nobody's talking about another 48 Hours. (laughs) We are. There's no daily diaries. What I know... The only person who's talked about this is the actor who plays Kehoe. Brian James. I mean, what does he have besides Blade Runner? A lot. He's a working actor. I mean, like big films, though. The work print of this film was 145 minutes. Over two hours, then. Walter Hill or Paramount cut it down to 120 minutes. That's what Paramount felt was the maximum running time this could justify. And then apparently it was really good at that length, according to Kehoe. One of the actors in it. (laughs) Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Yeah, he says he was like almost a third lead in the two-hour cut, Ah. and he's a glorified cameo in the cut we see. It's very strange how he suddenly becomes the major bad guy at the end. I'll I'll tell you, I I felt some scenes were missing, that's for sure. And apparently, and I didn't even know you could do this back in 1990, but the week before it was released, Paramount panicked because Total Recall opened up and made $25 the number one movie. And they were worried because they spent a lot of money on another 48 hours. Murphy got 12 million up front plus a cut of the grosses. And they felt that at two hours, the movie might be, quote, too much. And so (laughs) they cut it. Because Total Recall was shorter and made money? Usually you copy plots in Hollywood, not (laughs) runtimes. Step one, can Arnold come for a cameo appearance this week? What he said is they said, cut all the behavior, keep the action, keep the comedy, and it went down to 95 minutes. And I look, 
I went to dark places on the web where sometimes you can find things. I do not understand in what world the curse of Michael Myers work print cut gets an official (laughs) Blu-ray release, but nowhere on the web can I find the two-hour cut of another 48 hours? I tried looking too, Arnie, and it it was no... I was shocked what kind of work prints I could find, but not this one. Yeah, I got the disc out, and there were not even deleted scenes. They have bare bones, nothing... Did you get a trailer at least? Yeah, and, you know... know. The trailer has deleted scenes in it. (laughs) Oh, okay. But uh, I felt like there was a longer movie, or at least maybe a more coherent version of this story than what we end up getting. But I did find there was a novelization. Oh, Which usually goes off that shooting screenplay, so you got all the extra scenes that we missed out on you'll be able to explain this film to us finally i just pity the author that had to do that because (laughs) i'm sure that there were pages all over the place and they just you know sometimes they end up making up stuff i mean the thing in the (laughs) alien 3 novelization i read it was like it was aliens coming out of cows with udders it was really bizarre you remember my interview with david morrell where we discussed his novelization of rambo 3 and i'm like this doesn't match the movie. He's like, yeah, I agreed to write the book if I didn't have to follow the script and I could just write what I wanted. (laughs) (laughs) But Brian James was complaining that his entire character was lost. If this novelization is correct, then all you really lost was him in scenes talking to Jack. Scenes we still have just got trimmed so that he wasn't talking to Jack anymore. He was just hanging around a lot, so you never forgot him. So when he showed up at the end, it's not like, what? Right. But other than that, I can't say there's huge amounts of extra stuff. There's a couple things I'll let you know when we go through. Quantity, but maybe not quality. Just more of this experience. Does this mean the deleted scenes, the stuff they cut, like, actually didn't matter? It was just more talking? It does appear that way. Okay. (laughs) So maybe we don't need the two-hour cut to understand this. Maybe the novelist was told to cut the stuff out of the book and they had time to change it at printer. I don't know. But it ain't in this book. Don't read this book. That's my starting thing. I'm going to review the movie. Don't read the book. You get nothing. So all you get from the book is some extra lines by Kehoe. No, there's a couple things I'm going to go into. Okay. But, I mean, this thing's poorly edited. I do feel like there was some chaos, as things are mentioned that hadn't happened yet and happened later. So this seems like a rush job while somebody was snorting some coke. Yeah, or just like they didn't get the coke and everyone else was having fun. and They had to make sense of the cocaine party. I could tell you, though, 1990, I remember my friends and I could not have been more excited for this movie. Could not have been. This came out June 8th. It was the first weekend of summer break. I was graduating my sophomore year of high school. It was finals. My friends and I were acing all the finals, just like gliding through. And we'd see each other in the hallway. How'd you do on the final? Gonna kiss myself. Good guy. Doing Eddie Murphy lines from the trailer, even though it was James Brown, but we knew it as Eddie Murphy. Mm. And opening day, like a group of 12 of us descended upon the theater to see another 48 hours. Yeah, it's an interesting summer. It's worth pointing out we've covered extensively summer of 1989. That was the summer that Hollywood learned you can make money releasing a dozen movies like there used to be the mentality you only have a couple big films because otherwise 
you'll get killed. Summer of 89, every week was a blockbuster. So summer 1990, they have the same mentality. Yeah, the week before is Total Recall. The week after is supposedly the next Batman, Dick Tracy. So, like, if it's going to be a hit, it's going to be a hit this weekend only. It wasn't a flop, another 48 hours. It made the same amount of money as the first, just 10 years of inflation is different. And, of course, the budget is now, what, 50, almost $60 million to make. So, yes. It made 150 because there were overseas grosses with the second one that the first one didn't have. So it grossed more money, but it profited less. None of these films ended up being as big as, like, Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore sitting around a potter's wheel. Like, the big film of the summer <laughs> Ghost. was Ghost. Yeah. <laughs> that was huge. It made, like, $250 million. All of these other films fought it out for $100 million. But yes, another 48 hours. I didn't see it. Again, it, it didn't help that I didn't really know the first film that well. And Eddie Murphy, I didn't really go to the movie theaters to see his films. Sometimes I would rent them, but there wasn't a big draw for me. And so I don't think I ever saw it when it came on cable. I, I never heard anything good about it. This is the first time I've ever seen it. Yeah, I never saw this one, but I know it has a reputation for supposedly being awful. Like, it, it's just supposed to be garbage. That's that's everything I've heard. So it was interesting coming to this one because it was like the opposite of expectations as the first one, which was supposed to be this classic. I tried and tried to remember what did I think of this movie and have I seen it since. Was it better than Tango and Cash? Well, I saw Tango and Cash around the same time, so it was worse than Tango and Cash. Because that's the greatest movie ever. Okay. But I don't think I'd seen this since theaters, maybe once on video because I was having this obsessive compulsive disorder where I would rent and dub every sequel to every movie I ever liked. So maybe I watched it once on video. I had no memory of liking or disliking this film, but I believe I felt deflated. Like, after quoting it for a month and seeing that trailer time and time again, because I was at the theaters all the time in 1990, and before every movie I saw, this trailer was there. And so it was like, I felt like it didn't live up to the hype, and it didn't live up to Total Recall, which my friends and I had seen the week before. Eddie didn't even like it. I did read a quote where he told an interviewer much later, not the summer it came out, but his quote was, there's nothing like going to a theater, looking up at the screen, and you're a fat guy in a bad movie. Like, that's how he associates with this. It was a wake-up call for him. He knew that he needed to mix things up, try different things. After this point, he would try romantic comedy with Boomerang. He'd try to be a vampire with Wes Craven. And eventually he would move on to Disney. So it was kind of the beginning of the end of his relationship with Paramount Pictures. Yeah, you're, you're saying he was upset that he looked like a fat guy in this? Like, that's what he's going to become. That's his comeback as a clump. I, You know, I dug into that comment because I was like, well, he doesn't look that fat to me. No, that's shocking. Maybe 15, 20 pounds, but apparently behind the scenes, you know, Eddie doesn't do drugs. Eddie doesn't drink. Eddie doesn't gamble as far as I know, but he did, he was known, his vice was compulsively overeating. And so maybe out of that, like he felt like he was the nutty professor. But I think that when you're in the bubble of Hollywood, if you're 10 pounds overweight, you might as well be 100. Like I think there was pressure on him that he had let himself go and that it was reflected in his performance. He was out of shape 
both as a comedian and physically uh, in this film. And I think there's something to be said about that. This is definitely Eddie Murphy coasting. I don't think that I see the hungry young comic the first movie indicated was going to take over the world. This was his last of seven number ones in a row. And then his next number one opening wouldn't be until The Nutty Professor. Well, Arnie, why don't you give him the plot of another 48 hours? We'll get into it. San Francisco police detective Jack Cates, again played by Nick Nolte, has spent the past four years investigating a crime kingpin known only as the Iceman. The other cops think Jack's chasing a ghost, and Internal Affairs is investigating Jack. That investigation turns into prosecution when Jack, investigating a lead, gets into a gunfight and kills a suspect. The cops can't find the suspect's gun, and Jack is under pressure as he'll be charged with manslaughter if he can't clear his name. Jack discovered, however, that the Iceman has put out a hit on Jack's old friend, Reggie Hammond, again played by Eddie Murphy. Reggie's jail time was extended when something vague happened, but he spent five more years in prison and he's about to get out. The exact line they said is, he was framed for stealing the payroll. Yeah, he robbed payroll. Yeah, who's the prison's payroll? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they say, like, the money was just under his bed in prison or something. Makes no sense. None. <laughs> and Reggie believes the Iceman holds a grudge against him, as it was the Iceman that Reggie, Gans, and the others robbed for half a million dollars years earlier. With his life on the line, he again teams up with Jack to try and find the Iceman, all while dodging the biker gang bounty hunters hired to kill Reggie, one of whom happens to be Albert Gans's brother, Cherry Gans, played by <laughs> Andrew Divoff. A man. Don't be fooled by the cherry. <laughs> yeah, I was, why Cherry? We always stand in a buffalo stance. All I could think of. Great song. This Gans is equally bloodthirsty for Jack, as he wants to avenge Albert, who Jack killed at the end of the last movie. Reggie is captured by the bounty hunters, but they're now extorting the Iceman for half a million dollars. The trade is to go down at a nightclub. The Iceman himself cometh, and it turns out to be Jack's old friend and fellow officer Ben Kehoe, played by Brian James. A big fight ensues, the bounty hunters are killed, but Kehoe takes Reggie as a human shield. Jack shoots Reggie in the shoulder to get him out of the way, then shoots and kills Kehoe. Reggie is taken to the hospital with a pile of the Iceman's money as credits roll. Woof. And if some of that didn't make any sense, don't worry, we'll never make sense for you. <laughs> uh, we'll try. Let's start off with meaningless scene number one. Same opening score. I'm hoping we're going to get the same vibe, right? I mean, it's the exact same opening music as the last one, putting me in a good mood. I liked the last one a lot. So it's now in association with Eddie Murphy Productions. But hey, I'm game for what it's going to give me. Look, I'm getting the same vibe because we're opening up at this bar with a biker gang. And again, very long shots, taking its time. You're telling me they had an over two hour cut. I, I would hope this opening was cut down then because, again, just it, things linger and I don't know why. Here's what really makes no sense to me. So one of these dudes is Malcolm Price. And he's the boss of these other two, right? But he's also one of the assassins. He's <laughs> mm, he's taking orders from Burroughs, who we'll, we'll meet a little in a little bit. Was he? Yes. Iceman is giving Burroughs orders, who is then hiring hitmen. 
And he's hiring Markland, who's hiring Gans. <laughs> Six degrees of Kevin Bacon here. Six degrees of Iceman. Yeah, it's really, really fuzzy because when Cherry comes into the bar. I thought Cherry was hiring them. I thought the other guy there was Willie Hickok, but it turns out Willie Hickok was another guy. Cherry is the one with the tattooed tear. And he's the he's the gin from the Wishmaster. You can hear it in his voice. Only you know that one out of the three of us. <laughs> yeah, we still haven't seen it, and I have no plans unless someone donates big. <laughs> but, all right, they're all going to go kill Eddie Murphy. Great. Why do they have to shoot up the place and kill the lady sheriff that's showing up and some saloon guy? Because they're trying to redo the last one. You start off with bad guys shooting cops and running, right? Yeah, this is the exact same movie more or less like hopefully you've seen the last one because there's a lot of like background information you're going to need to know to really understand what's going on here but yes it does feel like all those critiques of what sequels are it's just the same as the first one but maybe a little bit more like totally applies to this the way the female cop gets shot out the window is hysterical to me <laughs> because you could practically see the harness pulling her back through the glass. Oh, yeah, a lot of harness shots in this with people going through glass. I do not know what caliber of gun she is being shot with, but she pulls back, and I haven't seen a human move that fast since I was at a circus <laughs> and saw a human shot out of a cannon. Yeah, it's bigger. I will say this, they have more money, and the times have changed as well. So we have a little bit more dramatic action, but I still don't feel like we're going to get huge, giant action, lethal weapon-style set pieces. We're going to get lots of scenes where people essentially are still running up and down stairs, like what we were talking about last time. It's kind of lo-fi action territory. There is definitely moments where I see them going for lethal weapon. It's funny how the worm turned, because 48 Hours set out the prototype that could be improved upon of the buddy cop formula. But why do you think they came back to 48 Hours? I think it's because they saw Lethal Weapon making all kinds of bank and were like, we started this, we should get some of that. Sure. And again, it's, you know, they come back to it because it's a sequel to a hit movie and that's what you do. Yeah, eight years later seems very late. They're, I think now they're trying to be Lethal Weapon, whereas before they inspired Lethal Weapon. There are definitely moments here where I feel like they are trying to up their action game to compete with Mel Gibson and Danny Glove. Well, I think we get it in the next scene because for reasons, suddenly Nick Nolte is at a dirt bike rally and shooting gas tanks that like <laughs> like spew flame out of it for reasons. This is where I got a lethal weapon vibe. Yeah, that huge explosion when he shoots that propane tank. Look, I got excited, just like the original Hills Have Eyes too. We got some dirt bikes here. It feels like something different, but they never come back. These dirt bikes are all over the trailer. Somebody thought dirt bikes was going to sell this movie. It would sell it to me. This dirt bike scene is all over that trailer. You see dirt bikes jumping in the air, you, you know, going in. I'm like, is Eddie Murphy on a dirt bike? No, it is just some dirt bike racer. You get to see Nick Nolte walking through dirt bikes. <laughs> yeah, thank God they didn't try to fake Nolte and Murphy on dirt bikes like in that Charlie's Angels sequel. <laughs> I might have laughed at that. Oh, it's laughable. But yes, it's probably good that they didn't attempt that. Why is he here? We think that he's here because he somehow knows that this man in a trench coat, that he doesn't know who it is. He's been tracking him for years, I think. Four years he's been after the Iceman. If I 
started doing something at my job four years ago, and if I still had a job, if I hadn't completed it in four years, I'd be fired. Yeah, and he's a cop. It's a, it's a closed case by now. But does he think this guy is the Iceman? No, he thinks this guy can lead him to the Iceman. I mean, find another lead, right? Like, this is just, okay, so because he sees this random guy hiring another random guy. Who pulls a gun out. Who Nick Nolte shoots. Yeah, that that guy does have a gun. Now, was this other random guy being hired also to kill Reggie? Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes that's what Burroughs, this mysterious man, is going to tell us later. Like, oh, I was just hiring another hitman. Just, I don't know, for reasons in case you guys suck at it. Maybe we're just going to hire nine people during this job. <laughs> I wanted to spend 200000 or at least 150000 because he's giving 50000 in advance and fifty more when the job's done. He wanted to just give away an extra 50000 just to be sure. Yeah, by the end of this, Cherry's going to say, like, oh, it's 500000 now to kill him. And, like, they go along. Like, it seems like they're already on their way to spending 500000 to kill him in the first place. I just want to jump to the end and say, meanwhile, all that really needs to happen is we have a cop who knows very well how to get to Eddie Murphy in jail. He is the Iceman. He could bypass all these assassins waiting for him to come out and give someone a, like, spoon that's been sharpened on an edge and say, get him at lunch, right? Like, except he's being protected by Bernie Casey. That's the whole thing with Bernie Casey being in this movie. I don't understand why he's in this movie. (laughs) He's Kirkland Smith and he has protected Reggie all these years. Is that the debt that Reggie owes him for? They keep talking about this debt, the $75,000 he owes him. That's what it's for? Protecting him from the Iceman? It's for protecting him from people trying to harm him in prison, who we will presume to be the Iceman. That does not come across. Like, I was confused by the whole Kirkland Smith subplot, and yeah, I w- I w- why didn't they just Jeffrey Epstein Murphy and have a cop or, or hire another prisoner to kill him in the prison? Like, that's what happens. Well, if you trust the novelization, there was a scene at the very beginning that was cut. Maybe it was too brutal for Eddie at this point, but the movie, at least in the book, opens with a knife fight. And Eddie Murphy has gutted a guy who tried to rape him. Wow. (laughs) And he's then questioned by the warden, and that's why he's put into solitary, not for throwing a basketball at Jack, and that's why Eddie's able to say it was self-defense, why he's being put into solitary, and it's mentioned that there have been several attacks on him. Well, did Bernie give him the knife? How, how is he protecting him? Maybe he keeps him away on other days. Maybe one just slipped through the cracks, so to speak. There's another scene where the go-between Tyrone, who goes between the Iceman and the Hitman, specifically said... Kirkland was keeping Eddie safe in prison. So maybe that would have helped you to hear more directly than just hearing Kirkland say, I kept you alive in here. Okay. So there is more evidence given for things that are alluded to in dialogue, but maybe not scenes we actually want to watch. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it's very exciting. Or or maybe too exciting. Like, I feel like Eddie has enough trouble with, like, gay audiences. and Oh, yeah, that part. Oof, yeah. It comes off the wrong way now. I don't want to see him gut a rapist. That's, no. How did Bernie Casey save him for five years, though? 
He's an old man that he will just be there, like the screenwriter touchstone of like, I don't know what to do. Bring in this character. He'll tell us what to do next. It's filling a huge plot gap that they suddenly have this character in prison that does things. Yeah, but I th- I take him as the head of a gang. So that's how he protected. It's not like it's one guy. He's the head of the prison gang. I had no idea that's what was going on. If all this is about is one man that's worried that he's been seen by another man and needing to off him, I feel like it goes through incredibly needless complications of hitmen who hire hitmen. And then hire backup ones just in case. Because he can ID. He's seen Iceman. Did he never see Kehoe in the first film? Why won't he tell Jack if Jack has been working on this case this whole time? I guess we get that answered when Jack blows into the prison and we find out that they haven't been talking. They, uh, unlike what the ending of the last movie told us, it wasn't six months and Reggie is out free and hanging out with Jack. He got tricked. What would you, what would you say? Framed by who? Who did that? Iceman, I'm guessing, like framed him because he knew he was going to get out in six months. Because I had questions about the timeline when I found out Reggie was still in jail because he's like, he, in that last one, he's always like, I'm going to be a good little prison inmate so I could get out. I don't want to stay here. And then he's back. I'm like, oh, is this still the six months going on? But no, he has now spent another five years. And my only guess is that Iceman framed him to keep him in jail, even though he wants him dead. Just like let him out and then kill him. No, no, no. If you want him to get out of jail so you can kill him, why wouldn't you let him go out in six months? Why would you keep him there? Yeah, exactly. I don't understand why you would want him kept in jail. I don't understand what payroll he stole. There must be a scene that explains this that got cut. Yeah, how many screenwriters were on this? Eddie Murphy and it looks like three other ones. I just feel like they didn't talk to each other or maybe it was just, again, another situation where they're on set, stressed. I I don't know. It's not the same thing. They're not writing for Eddie Murphy. You would think that there would be a a finished script. Did they go into production without a script? Is that what happened? Not that I know of. There's no information on this film. Because, I mean, I understand that, like, things get chaotic, but these are problems you can fix in a matter of hours. Like, you don't even need a weekend to fix the idea that, like, we just need to clean up some of these characters and throw out extraneous stuff. I'm guessing if there's a two-hour-plus cut, it's got to address these issues. Sure. And so, basically, the fault that they made was they overstuffed it with way too many plot details when they should have kept it simple. And so, we have a plot that we cannot reduce for our listeners. I don't know how to tell you what's going on. All I can really do is tell you where the characters are going and how much it's like the original movie. Yeah, I mean, here's what I can summarize, you know, is Jack is after the Iceman. We find out at the end that the Iceman is this cop who is reprising his role from the first film. I liked him in the first film, too. I'm so mad what they do with Kehoe. So that's something, though, because he was in the first film, you probably wouldn't jump to think Kehoe is the guy. And there's another cop, Frank Cruz, who's also there, who works for the Iceman, who we're supposed to think might be the Iceman. Okay, do we do meet Frank Cruz earlier? Because I was so, like, that came out of left field when they're like, ooh, this is the Iceman. I'm like, no, it's not. We don't even know who this character is. I've never seen him. You know, he's in several scenes 
the first time we see Kehoe and Frank Cruz is at the motocross track where the IA guy asks those two cops, did you find the gun that Jack is saying was shooting at him? And those two cops say, we don't see the gun. I'm never paying attention to Cruz because I know who the actor is playing Kehoe. Wilson, you're setting up as an antagonist, as this internal affairs guy. Cruz, if he's in scenes, like he didn't make an impression on me then. There's other scenes where he's like helping Jack and telling Jack, you better run this guy's out to get you and you better not come into the precinct. When Jack calls in and needs help from the police station, most of the time it's Cruz who answers, but sometimes it's Kehoe. Okay, see, I only paid attention when Kehoe was interacting with Jack. Like, this this Cruz guy was just another cop. So both of these guys basically are the head of the Iceman organization. So so if Kehoe's Iceman, he hires Cruz, who hires Burroughs, who hires... What's his name that ends up dead? Who hires Cherry? Yes. Wow. It's a multi-level marketing scheme of a movie. Yeah. It's a Russian doll where, like, in the center is a turd. (laughs) There's no point in trying to follow this trail. There's a lot of confusion, and the point, the reason why they've set up the scenes the, the way that they have is because we will be able to recreate and relive that first movie in allegedly a bigger, more exciting 60 million dollar format i watched this twice for this review the first time i watched it i just was watching it to take in the second time i'm like i miss stuff and that watching took me about three and a half hours because i keep rewinding like did i miss something did i miss something did i miss something yeah the what you've missed is apparently 30 minutes of footage that will never be put back into this film and you know what i'm glad if the choice were I would get more answers, but this movie would be longer, let's just keep it going quick. No, I totally agree. Like, to me, this is on par with the last film. Like, I had a lot of questions. This one, they're sillier because they got to make it a sequel and they're trying to expand the characters. But if I'm just watching this without the now playing glasses, eh, it's it's passing over me. I'm not getting more upset than I did last week. Here's what I like. I mean, it's an obvious thing to do. If you're doing a sequel, do the opposite of what you did last time. The twist on it is, this time it looks like Nick Nolte's Jack is the one going to jail as Eddie Murphy's Reggie is getting out. Reggie's last day in jail is happening as Jack is finding out that they are going to prosecute him because he shot an unarmed man. Is that the 48 hours? Is it 48 hours till they arrest him or something? I was trying to figure out what are the 48 hour timeline in this film. It's in the trailer. I do not know why when you're cutting down a movie to 95 minutes, you have to cut the two lines that set up the title Because Jack tells Reggie, I have 48 hours to find the Iceman or my life is over. And Reggie goes, you want me to go out with you for another 48 hours? I watched the trailer before I watched. I remember that. Yeah, it's not here, right? No, they cut that out. So you have to really pay attention. And like the last 48 hours, they go over their 48 hours in this one. Actually, I feel like it's only 24 hours. Yes. (laughs) I only see the sun go down once. Now, at some point, it gets weird. Even before the gangsters have put the hit on the bus, they're being given a bomb to also, like, blow up the Porsche. So maybe things in the editing and trimming of this movie last minute, they've condensed things to the point where it feels like you're watching one day and not two. But, all right, let's go through this. Uh, Jack 
is, again, a detail that I like is he may actually be, I've been humiliated, debadged, framed for a crime, all because I wanted this Iceman, and then finding out that, lo and behold, Reggie actually works in a job. The whole thing that got him in jail in the first place was that he stole from the Iceman, and that together, yet again, they can work together. There's some trial that's coming that's actually just a trial for another trial. That It's a hearing, yeah. It's a he- yeah, it's, there's no real stakes in this movie. But bearing down on all of this are three motorcycle hog guys who are going to be riding up as Reggie is getting on the prison bus. And Reggie gets on the prison bus because he refuses to help Jack. He's like, you're going to jail? Good. Because Jack is blackmailing Reggie, saying, I have that $500,000... I spent 25 of it. I bought the same car I had before, and I'm not going to give you your money unless you help me. And put down a down payment on a house with Annette O'Toole, who's not in this film. Yeah, she left him. It makes you wonder if Jack was the one that framed Reggie. Like, it almost sounds like he was the one that kept him in jail. Yeah, Reggie said he could have some of the money for the car and things, so Reggie was cool with that. I don't Reggie being framed, it wasn't Jack. Jack didn't give a shit. Jack's been after the Iceman. But Reggie won't help Jack because Jack's blackmailing him into doing so until Reggie, this felt like a lethal weapon scene, that bus gets shot to shit and rolls 17 times. Oh yeah, the the way it flips over, yes. This is far more than people running downstairs. And, and uh, Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. Like, this plot is maybe even dumber than last week's, but, like, the action scenes are better. It's incoherent. I don't know if it's smarter or dumber because it's been cut. Yeah, I have a lot of questions. I already said that. I didn't understand what the deal with Kirkland Smith was, but hey, this like shootout looks pretty cool. And I like when the bus flips like for an action movie, at least it's hitting those notes. Yeah, I I think that that should be pointed out and celebrated is that the cinematography, this movie is just brighter and bigger and, and more big screen than the little small grungy thing that we had last time. Like it feels very cinematic. Could they do more? Absolutely. This bus scene is only, what, one of two others that, that I would call a big action set piece. It still feels smaller than most action movies, but they're trying. They're trying to keep pace. And they're trying to keep you, what, on your toes? We're supposed to believe Jack has been shot. We see him at a diner or something. These bikers show up, and they shoot him, and we presume he's, I guess we're supposed to presume he's dead. I don't, because the movie's, like, only 20 minutes in. Yeah, I mean, you know, God willing that they'd want to do something so bold as actually kill a major character. And, I mean, that would have us all on our heels, right? We would be stunned if Nick Nolte was taken out. Wouldn't even necessarily be a bad move, but... Uh, they don't need them, but they're trying to recreate something here. They're not trying to innovate. They're not trying to nope. change anything <laughs> about the last movie. They want to give it to you in a bigger package. And so we get Reggie singing James Brown instead of Roxanne. Although he does sing Roxanne. He does do Roxanne at the beginning. Yeah. Just a little bit because, you know, no joke can't be funnier when you retell it in the sequel, right? I, I mean, the N-word doesn't get reused, thankfully. Yeah, right. And the police chief doesn't come back he is in the extended cut that we never can see they cut them all out man keep the police chief in this oh he's in the extended cut yeah he was in he came back and filmed scenes yelling at jack some more 
but those were cut. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I did. I don't know if I would use the word missed him, but I did notice that like there didn't seem to have a boss anymore, and that was kind of weird. Yeah, the, Wilson, this internal affairs cop, is now the new antagonist. Right. That's the, how it comes across. And so they've both been injured. Jack was wearing a bulletproof vest, so he has a broken arm. He can't drive anymore. And Reggie is basically going to be held in custody until Jack tells the cops that, oh, he's a child molester and I need him for some case to bust another child molester. He's not in custody. The doctor worries he has a subdural hematoma. And you have to watch those because that can cause a brain bleed and kill you. And there's no symptoms until it happens. So he was being kept for observation for 24 hours until Nick Nolte calls him a child molester. That's not helping, but okay. Yeah, he's got to bust a pedophile ring with the help of Reggie. Okay. Yeah, again, these are jokes that are questionable, but... uh, Uh, So they're on the road again. I'm going to do this movie a huge favor. This first 30 minutes is incredibly messy. How they've gotten here to get the two back together again is pretty bad. But now that they're back together, is it going to be fun to see them? We don't care about plot. We care about chemistry. Can Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy make us laugh or make... I, I know the answer to the other one is not care about this case no that will never happen can we enjoy hanging out with them again now that they're going to bars and doing the things we love them for arnie i'm looking at you because you were the one that liked the movie last week it doesn't last very long is the problem they leave the hospital they go for a car ride together they go to see eddie's porsche and that's where the bomb was planted we find out nick nolte had installed a key fob alarm system on it And when they disarm the alarm, the car blows up and Reggie's like, well, screw it. I'm just going to call my friends and get a loan. I don't need you, Jack, and leave Jack for another 15 minutes. And this is night one, by the way. Now we are in the nighttime while Reggie is making all of these calls and Jack goes back to the police station and talks with Kehoe and the other guy. Yeah, this is where he turns in his badge and his gun. You say night one. It's the only night that we're going to see. This is like the whole thing. By the morning, there'll be the court case. But let's just get to it. If the best scene in the first movie was that they went to a redneck bar, we have to go to this Barnstormers, right? We have to go to, I I don't know, what is the vibe here? It's kind of Hootie and the Blowfish meets (laughs) Harley Davidson. And this whole thing plays very weird to me. Very weird. I get that Eddie is hanging out and they don't use the word trim in this movie, but he's looking for some trim. He's like, and nobody's giving him any play because he doesn't have money. But he sees this girl pickpocket a guy. And so he's going to go up and tell the guy and then go into the ladies room to get the money back that he so he can keep half of it. I do not understand this scene one bit. I think part of it is he, he's torpedoing this dude's chance with this girl. Like he's going, ah, oh, she robbed you. Why do you want to get with her? So he could get with her. But I think this is a callback. If, if you remember, he was always trying to get a gun or a knife in that last film. And Jack would notice him and call him out on it. So I guess he learned something from Jack. Now he's observing and he sees this girl pickpocket all this stuff from this guy. So he, I, I don't know if that's the point, but that's how I took it. 
I don't think either of them are going to get with this girl. If she pickpocketed one, she's not coming back. And Reggie's going back there to accost her and get the money. So No, that's where I get confused is he goes in there to get it all back. Here's my take on what I thought was happening. Reggie has no money of his own. He's been calling up people. No one will loan him any money. The money that was in the back of the Porsche is presumed to have exploded. And so the only way he has to get money now is this grift, right? She robs somebody and then he robs her. Because he's only going to give that guy half his money back and he's going to keep the other half. He's going to take a service fee for messing up a chick in the ladies' room. Man, we, we find out he owes 75k to Kirkland Smith. Like, he's going to have to pull a lot of these grifts. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a great plan to, to make all the money that he owes the guy in prison, but I think that that is what we're supposed to think. He's thinking about money-making schemes. I think it's just supposed to be funny, but I want to point out, Harlem Knights got into a lot of trouble because a lot of the humor, it felt like, I only saw the movie once, was predicated on the idea that Eddie Murphy beat up on a woman. And I remember it just didn't play funny, and there were a lot of think pieces about, is this the kind of image we want to put out there? And he's still doing it here. Like, we don't see the fist fight, but, like, the presumption is he beat the crap out of that girl. Yeah, this scene just kind of blew over me because I just couldn't make sense of it. I mean, I did laugh during one part. This is not, even though I think Murphy's better in this film, I'm more engaged with him. I don't think he gets like that standout scene, like in the redneck bar here, he gets a funny line. He'll shoot a guy in the kneecap and say, sorry about the kneecap. I got a little excited, but yeah, it's, it's not a better scene overall. No, I mean, yeah, it's also worth pointing out another randomness happening is some guy that Jack busted two years ago is recognizing him and wanting to beat him up. And and Jack is even saying, oh, it's such a cliche to have a bar fight, but this movie's not above cliche. So, yeah, we have, I guess, a bigger action scene where things are pulled down from the ceiling and it's certainly not to better effect. Yeah, and they make a big deal about going in there with Jack using a fake police badge. It doesn't even matter. Like, that that's going to get called out later. Why wouldn't you make that point later on? Like, don't set the joke up here. Yeah, I again, for lots of reasons, I think we know by this point. Barnstormers tells us if this were getting the gang back together, the gang ain't as good as it used to be. Walter Hill, Nick Nolte, Eddie Murphy. I heard you, Jacob, saying you think Murphy's better in this movie? He feels more comfortable. I'll put it that okay. way. I don't know if he's better. I don't get a bigger laugh than I did with the Redknapp bar in the last one, but he does feel more comfortable overall. Okay. I Yes, he's more comfortable on camera, but I don't feel like this is him working harder to be funnier. Uh, yeah, this is no Beverly Hills cop. Yeah. It's not even a nutty professor. Yeah, this is not working. It's I feel that after a certain point in the 80s, Eddie Murphy lost touch with what made him funny. And I think like some of the beating up Della Reese was him thinking he was being funny, but he'd retreated up to Bubble Hill. Humor requires connection. And what happens to a lot of comedians if they become uber rich is they lose that connection with the common people who they're telling their jokes to. And so Eddie up on Bubble Hill is saying beating up Della Reese is funny. And so I'm going to do that. And now we have this here and it's still not working. And I feel like Eddie has become very cynical in his movie making since then. And so here we're seeing an Eddie on the decline who's not at his peak. He hadn't been at his peak 
since the first Beverly Hills Cop, with the possible exception of Coming to America, his movies had been getting drugged. Beverly Hills Cop 2, Golden Child. Still a movie that makes me laugh. Again, I don't feel like I'm asking for cerebral, brilliant, game-changing comedy. I just would like to see the lighthearted guy that says something Quicksilver that, you know, just gets a shock out of us. You know, like, Eddie Murphy could do that. But he got so much crap for Raw that he's scared to do that now. Yeah, okay. Well, because that has lots of homophobic stuff in it. Just, you don't have to go that way. Like, yeah, this doesn't feel edgy. Like, I think of a, I know this is 1990, but of an 80s Eddie Murphy film. I do feel like it doesn't feel R-rated anymore. Like, I feel like that first movie definitely had an R-rated edge. And this, I know it's not, but it, why isn't it PG-13? Yeah, there's a brief titty shot and a few F-words, and that's it. Uh, The blood isn't so bad. Maybe they would have actually made the money they needed to if they'd gone PG-13. And Eddie would not go R again for quite a while either, with the exception of the dramas. But a lot of his comedies would switch to the PG-13s starting, and even PG. Or PG. I mean, he's going Doolittle in a few years. Yeah, certainly by going Disney, that was just waving a white flag to what he was trying to do in his R-rated films. But yeah, I don't find the chemistry here working between the actors. I don't find this bar scene to have anything on the last one. I'm not quite sure what's going on. I'm sad to say, after really loving the first one, I found myself not enjoying this one really at all. And I was so disappointed so far and i'm like can this movie dig itself out now can it just it's not going to be a strong recommend can it dig its way to a weak recommend and i feel like it gets worse the problem is the more they get along the more it's like what i don't what do you want to do i don't know how about i punch you in the face again i mean like you can just feel like they're like we're just wandering around now let's go to this brothel where somebody's girlfriend is there I'm really confused by this because Reggie left Jack. Jack ended up going somewhere with Kehoe. But when Jack gets to the brothel, Kehoe is gone because Kehoe and and Reggie obviously can't see each other or Reggie's going to go Iceman. So there's none of that. And Reggie went to call Kirkland Smith in Bernie Casey in prison and be like, I know you want money. It's getting more complicated. And Kirkland was like, you gave your promise. And then they're just back together again at the brothel. Yeah. I mean, the book has a little bit more, but it at least explains where Kehoe goes and gives him yet another moment with Jack here. He's telling Jack to kill the bikers and not read them their rights. And in retrospect, you see that as Iceman trying to make sure nobody gets captured who can finger him. Just wants Jack to kill them, and Jack gets yelled at again by the IA officer. As for Reggie, there's nothing not seen in the movie. Is it because Kirkland yelled, all you have is your word, that he decided to put up with Jack some more? I don't know. I can't follow really any character motivation in this thing. It's definitely not working as a crime story. Like, that's readily apparent. Yeah, I'm looking at this. What are the action pieces like? Because, again, the last one, a lot of chases that seemed to go nowhere or didn't have that big climax to punctuate it. This one, yeah, they they go into this brothel. Reggie pretends to deliver a pizza. Like, none of this seems very well planned out. But you know what? I I laughed when those bikers, like, they drive through the 
screen of a porno movie theater like there's a <laughs> woman with big tits and they fly through the screen right between those tits i don't feel proud about that but like look yeah. this is this is what i'm I, i'm trying <laughs> we didn't see this in the last one like they have more of a budget here at least like we could actually have some stunts now yeah this is what i'm calling the bigger action it feels like the second of the yeah three or so scenes that they just couldn't afford and i don't know that they would have attempted if they could have but the sensibility seems to be doing more of a lethal weapon kind of zany blockbuster. Yeah, they're trying for it, but they're just not capturing the heart that was the key to what made Lethal Weapon a success. Again, when we reviewed Lethal Weapon 1, we discussed that first plot was a little bit incoherent with, you know, the sex worker and the drugs and who went where to what, but Gibson and Glover carried that here i'm just trying to keep track of when these guys are even on screen because they're spending it you know they're sharing it so much with these biker gangs yeah the biker stuff i don't know why they went that route i guess they really thought they needed to have this twist about who is Iceman. like that the whole thing is predicated on caring about someone that i never care about and like the fact that it ends up being a fellow cop means not a wit to me. But why can't it just be about bikers versus cops? Like, I feel like it wasn't a mystery in the first movie who the bad guy was. You're speaking to my heart, Stuart. Yeah, you could just. It's not a great twist that we find out that it's Kehoe. Is it a twist? Like, as soon as they say that Iceman is a cop, and I'm like, okay, I, I don't know if you guys ever watched The Office, but there is a great episode where they do one of those murder mystery games, and one of the pieces Dwight Schrute gives, and it's one that I, I had realized before I ever saw this episode, but I thought that he really defined it well. It's never who you most expect. It's never who you least suspect. It's always who you medium suspect. So I knew it wasn't Wilson because he's too obvious. I knew it wasn't this Freddy or whoever because I didn't even catch who that character was. I least suspected him. So I'm like, oh, it's Kehoe because that's who I medium suspect. All I remember from my theatrical viewing was when I knew there was a mysterious Iceman, I'm like, oh, it's Kehoe. Brian James always plays a bad guy. I didn't even remember him from the first film. I'm like, Brian James is there. He's obviously the bad guy. I mean, I've seen so many movies where he's the bad guy, including, yeah, Blade Runner and Tango and Cash. <laughs> yeah, and why does it have to be anything? Why can't they be fighting formidable people and not these, again, a character we saw last movie that was just sort of an office nag? Like, now he's a major drug dealer? Yeah, it's very weird, yeah. <laughs> I just, whatever. I have no use for this as the thing that they're building up to. If it's about bikers, make it about the bikers. But even the bikers are starting to drop. Like, all of a sudden, Malcolm's dead. Yeah, Malcolm's dead. I thought Burroughs, this mysterious black man that's going around hiring all these hitmen, was going to be a bigger deal. Like, they spent so much time to, trying to identify him. Nope, doesn't matter. And Burroughs gets killed by Cherry Gans. First they shoot his ear and then they kill him. And so everybody's turning on everybody. And so I don't understand exactly what the biker's plot is now because the guy who's going to give them the money isn't there. It literally becomes down to we want to kill everyone. We want to kill Jack because Jack is the man that killed my brother. We want to kill... Uh, Reggie, I guess, because he helped Jack do that. And now we want to kill Iceman because Iceman whacked in a really weird scene. Like we have this 
motel scene that's shot from like the floor poking up so that we don't see, I guess, that it's Kehoe walking into this hotel room. But yes, this Iceman did pay a visit to the third biker and shot him. Why did he shoot him? You hired him to do this job. Is it the fact that he's hired nincompoops that are driving through porn theaters and not doing a good job of assassinating their hit? For reasons, Kehoe, after meeting up with Jack and giving him more information, decides now is the time to walk up to the hotel room that has one of the three bikers that I hired to do this, the the ringleader, and just shoot him point blank. So now that the other two bikers want nothing more in the world but to kill him, like you killed my father figure, and I, even though you were going to pay us $100,000, we're going to kill you. So that's how bad the script is. That's basically what we're saying here. Or, or at least this final cut. Maybe this all made sense with those extra scenes. It's possible. It's hard to believe. I'll say that. Yeah. Again, if the thought is I could have all the answers that I want, but 30 more minutes of this, I'll take the <laughs> incoherence. So, so so the bikers tell Iceman, we want half a million dollars now because you killed our mentor. Is that why they want the money? Yes. Or are they just saying that to lure him out and they're going to kill Iceman anyway and hope for the money? Yes, yes, yes. I don't know, Arnie. It's Yes. <laughs> They're going to do all of it. They're just so bad that they're going to kill everyone. It doesn't help this movie that so many of these middlemen, there's all these, I don't know them from anything else. It's a bunch of random people and Brian James from Blade Runner. So it's not a surprise that him being the most recognizable face is the big bad. And that all these other people, as soon as they get iced in this shootout scene i'm never going to see them in another movie except i guess if i see wishmaster you keep telling me <laughs> that this this cherry He's gonna blow you away as the villain of wishmaster i don't know yeah wish granting the gin <laughs> the d is silent it's just a gin and we are on day two jack's hearing was that day we, according to the book missed another kehoe scene where he testified supposedly on jack's behalf and then Eddie went to give the money to Kirkland's daughter. We find out that's what all the money thing was about. That's when Gans and the other guy catches him. And then we get to the club that night. Two nights. It's close to 48 hours. I feel like I'm in a casino during this film. I don't know when it's day or night. Yeah, you might be right there. It, my sense was that all of this was happening within a matter of hours, him getting out of prison and all of this. But if you say that there was a day of activity in between... All right. Just get me to the birdcage club where the girls are like riding in little elevator cages. Yes. And and we can have shootouts and, and what have you. Jack has followed some Frank Cruz character that we're led to believe is the Iceman. And then at some point, Kehoe steps out and goes, no, I'm the Iceman. And again, does that mean anything for anyone? Like, I don't care who anyone here is. Would something happen? I'll give the movie this. It has had some visual style at points. I love the dry ice smoke floor that people bounce in and out of at this birdcage club in the last fight. I wish the fight overall were better, but I do like that little touch. Yeah, I feel like Walter Hill can do this stuff in his sleep. Like, I usually think of his stuff as being slick like Tony Scott. So, 
It actually is a surprise that there isn't more of those touches. Maybe, was this rushed? Did they, like, make this all in, like, three months? Because it feels like maybe they started at the beginning of the year and had, like, a hard deadline and, and just ran out of time. It feels like these people are better than this, but they just didn't have time to be. According to IMDb, this was filmed January through April of 1990. Yeah, so I was on the money. They, like, really had to fucking crank something out, and mistakes or not, it's going out that way. There's too many mistakes here, and these people have done better work in other things for me to believe that they were satisfied that this was the story they wanted to tell. They were trapped by... Uh, summer movie schedule that said you will be releasing this movie in six months we started in january and it's coming out in june and you know you get what you get this is what happens this is why you don't make those creative decisions based on release dates again look at these people look at the movies that they've made and know that they don't make stuff this bad they just don't well, we end up with a climax that's a complete repeat of the first movie. The biker, Reggie punched him so hard he flew out a window that was like 10 stories up and died. And then Iceman uses Reggie as a human shield. And this time, I guess Nick Nolte isn't as good of a shot because he has to <laughs> shoot Reggie in the shoulder. By the way, I think the entire movie Speed stole its question of the hostage scenario from this movie. Shoot the hostage. I don't understand why you had to shoot him. Because if you shoot him, he's going to fall over and then you have a clear shot. I thought it was to send the signal that I don't care about this person you've taken for a hostage. You think I'm not going to shoot you because you're holding a gun to Reggie, but I'll shoot Reggie myself. I thought it was he was going to shoot Reggie through the shoulder and the bullet would go through the meat and still hit Iceman. You'd think that. You'd think that, but it didn't happen. I think it's supposed to just be a payoff for this joke about a bulletproof vest because when Jack got shot, he was wearing one. That's why he's still alive. But if you shoot someone in the shoulder, bulletproof vest, their vest, they don't have sleeves. Like, it's still going to go through you. That vest would have done nothing to help Reggie. Well, either way, Reggie's out of the way so Iceman can be shot. And then at the end, what happened to Reggie's money? Because Reggie had 475000 He went to give 75000 of it to Kirkland Smith's daughter. Yeah, because Jack had the money in his police locker instead of in the Porsche this time. Right. So that leaves 400000 but that money was taken to the Birdcage Club? No, no. Isn't this a different 500000 Because Cherry says it's going to cost... That's a different 500000 Iceman brought 500000 so that the bikers will kill Reggie. But I'm trying to figure out what happened to Reggie's 400000 Where'd that money go? Wouldn't it be part of what they're using to pay off the bikers? No, because the bikers had the 400000 I thought the whole thing is Jack and Reggie are both going to have half a million dollars, minus some expenses for Reggie by the end of this film. Except... Jack tells Reggie, here's a half a million dollars. We'll talk about spl uh, like splitting it later. Just take it with you to the hospital. It's so confusing to me what happened to the money. But somehow Reggie gets a half million dollars again. I mean, it's even more malfeasance in that they spent $14 million for Eddie Murphy to do this movie. But Reggie doesn't get more money because Jack says, I'm going to keep this money this time. Or split it or something. He says, we'll talk later about it. I thought he was handing it over to Tisha 
Felicia Campbell, the daughter care. That's only $75,000. No, you're right. She is left with a big bag, so she gets 475000 Yeah, I thought she got it all. Oh. Okay. Okay. So he walked there with all the money instead of just the $75,000 for the debt? Yes. Oh. Uh, okay. Jacob Stewart, <laughs> do you recommend another 48 hours? <laughs> Jacob. Uh, this conversation's kind of changed my opinion on this film. Like, watching it, like, look, it's got problems. It's a sequel. It's got all the problems that that are traditional to criticize a sequel for. Yes, it's bigger, but it's more or less the same story. That There's not a whole lot of innovation. We're going to repeat the jokes, which is a problem because I didn't think the first one had a lot of jokes. Like, you could have really amped up the humor in this one, especially with a Murphy that's eight years later, feels a lot more comfortable in front of the camera doing a, a, a big film like this. Look, the action pieces are better but yeah there are problems with this plot as we have discussed and i'm sorry we don't have answers for all of you out there because we are just as baffled as you may be after watching this trying to figure out where money is and who hired who like we need those extra scenes yes but here's the thing like it kind of brushed over me pretty similar to the last one like this one's got some better action pieces and i guess expectations are a big deal like when you're going into a movie i know i've seen a trailer and that gave me expectations for a film and then it ended up not being that and I'm like well I didn't like it I went to go see this kind of film and you did a bait and switch and so for 48 hours I'm like well I hear this this is a great film like the, the classic and it didn't live up to that and then I heard this film is awful and I'm like uh, it's it's just another mediocre action film like that last one the first 48 hours and, and then the pieces are a bit bigger here so I kind of enjoyed it more but yeah this plot is dumb. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Who knows what's on the cutting room floor? Look, I don't think you have to see either one. Like, this one, again, because the action pieces are bigger, I enjoyed a little bit more, but both of them I never want to see again, so it's a, it's another mild not recommend for me. Stewart. Yeah, I didn't recommend the quote-unquote good movie last week, so there's no chance I'm going to say this inferior sequel is a green arrow. I'm just trying to imagine if I did love that movie last week. If it, if it were just something that I thought was great... And I think if you think it's great, it's because you think Eddie Murphy is great. He he created a new black leading man for the 80s. The problem, I think, is even if you like that, they haven't done enough to make eight years later feel like they've done anything more groundbreaking. I mean, case in point, Terminator, it took all of that money, did the first movie again, but on a large scale. And Lethal Weapon sequels, they got bigger and bigger with the stunts. Here, yeah, some guy, they paid somebody to fall into a truck full of water. Or, you know, they have these little, like, a bus flips. But they really don't do what you expect to see in a Die Hard movie. And I think that in 1990, expectations were you need to do a lot more if this is an action movie. If you're going to call yourself as such, you need to walk that walk. You can't be the, the small little film that you were in 1982. And if you are, then you need to make it about characters that are funny. You need to make this a comedy. And so I forgive this movie for being lazy, sloppy, rehashing things. But I really feel like if you're telling me they're doing the first movie again bigger, the problem is the spectacle. They have no powder keg for Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte to light. These are people that are lumbering like dinosaurs in a new age of the summer super blockbuster. And so, no, I don't think fans of the original or 
definitely people that didn't like the original are going to like another 48 hours. It's a not recommend. I liked the original a lot. And I really wanted to like this one coming back to it. And I'm sorry to say everything that was going for it just was not there this time. I, if Eddie, I think, was feeling a little bit shaken with his confidence, especially around this time. He went back to work with John Landis again, who did Trading Places. He did Coming to America. With another 48 hours, I think if you want that big action, Jan de Bont spectacle, you don't get Walter Hill to direct. You get somebody who's had more specific late 80s action scene experience But I think Murphy felt comfortable with Hill. Hill helped him when he was young and just starting out. And so he wanted that familiar presence again. He wanted the gang back together. But Hill isn't the one to deliver the kind of action that Lethal Weapon 2 had. A a gas pump that inexplicably becomes a flamethrower is not equivalent to a house exploding and a toilet falling on a cop car. They had a flamethrower by part four of Lethal Weapon, so... Yeah, they had an Iron Man, so... But I think the biggest failing for me of this film, though, is the editing. I think that there might have been a film I could recommend if there was a film I could comprehend. But I I don't know if the performances are bad or if the chemistry is there, because I can't find it. I can't see it. So, in the end, this movie is an incredible, incoherent mess that even Eddie Murphy's charisma can't save. And as much as I liked Nick Nolte in the first one, I don't know that Nick Nolte has ever had charisma in his life. Maybe in the 70s when he was the sexiest man alive, I wasn't there to see it. So it's a real solid not recommend. Pretend there's only one of these movies. Actually, his, he got declared the sexiest man alive the next year. He ended up doing, I think it was the twofer of, he did Cape Fear, and which was not sexy, and Prince of Tides, which, I don't know, wasn't sexy either. But I think showed range, and I don't know, maybe it was just an off year. I don't think Nick Nolte was ever the sexiest man alive. But he kind of ended up going on an upswing, and Murphy kind of went on a downswing. And I wouldn't have predicted that after this movie. It's too bad. Could they redeem it with a third movie? Could those two come back now or recast, reboot? I mean, I haven't recommended these two, so yeah. (laughs) If there's a hope for a recommend, there's a redemption. Well, I'm sure you guys would have liked this knowledge. In 2017, it was announced there was going to be a remake. Okay, makes sense. Done by the Safdie brothers. Oh, yeah, I like them. That would have been great. They did Uncut Gems and... Uh, Good Time? Yeah. Which feels like a 48 hours film. They would obviously take a lot more chances. There's one thing I would say about their work is that they definitely don't play it safe. And if anything, maybe the language gets worse than the first movie. Well, they're no longer doing it. And the reason being, according to Josh Safty, is they wrote a few drafts. And his exact quote is... We wrote a few drafts with the studio, and it became very clear that we don't know how to do a remake. We only know how to do our own ideas. So I'm guessing what they were writing didn't mirror the old 48 hours enough to satisfy the studio. Mm -hmm. So what they've said is they're going to do the script they wrote, but it's just not going to be a 48 hours film. They're going to make... So I guess some kind of buddy film. Was it a reboot or a sequel to these? A complete reboot. Okay. Do we know any actors they were thinking about or? I don't think they got that far. Yeah. 
I, I get it. Well, I mean, I look forward to that film. I think that that's probably ultimately what I want too. Somebody to take the inspiration of what was going on in these two movies that I'm saying or not recommends and make something that is more inspired. Because I think in the end, neither one of them moves heaven and earth, right? Even if you like them, I feel like they're middle of the road, forgettable. They're not classics, right? They, for whatever they might have done for, the first one is. The first one is a classic. I would not call the first one a classic. I know you you don't like the first one, but the first one is a classic. I would call it homework. If you if you're saying that's the beginning of Eddie Murphy's career, that that's a homework movie because that is not Eddie Murphy in that film. No, it's the beginning of the buddy cop formula that started in the '80s and went on. It's not. I called out Nighthawks, which came out the year before. Like that was already a thing. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't. This it wasn't the first movie to to partner a, a salt and pepper act and see what they did in a, a underworld crime movie. I mean, hardly. But it was the one that popularized it and created the template of the angry police chief. And I don't know that that's true, Arnie. I, I'd i have to go do a deep dive and see where all that stuff comes from. You'd have to go back to 70s cop movies, which, uh, again, we haven't really covered that decade. You'd have to look at French Connection, Dirty Harry. Yeah, does Dirty Harry have an angry chief? Okay, well, I'm I'm not saying this myself. I'm quoting Walter Hill, who said there was one movie before, but nobody really saw it, and this is the one that really started the genre. Yeah, of course he wants to take credit for that. <laughs> he directed the film. Like, I don't, I'm not going to take him as a authoritative source. And maybe it is. I feel like if there's anything, like, you go back to 48 Hours, it's because you want to see the beginning of Eddie Murphy's film career. Uh, that's it. It's homework to me. I have to agree with that. Ultimately, it best serves Murphy more than it serves anything else. Well, I think it's a good movie and worth your time. And go back if you enjoy action movies. But if you don't enjoy action movies and you prefer Stephen King horror sci-fi, next week we're going to talk about Stephen King's golden years. Yes, he enters his golden period of working for CBS, the hippest network around. Oh no, <laughs> that is the old people network. But wait, wait, wait. We don't do TV series. This isn't a movie. Why are we doing this? Well, it ended up becoming something that they're calling a movie. Just to be clear, in 1991, after David Lynch took the world by storm by creating Twin Peaks, they were asking other people that don't normally do television, would you come do TV? And Stephen King designed a show in which a man aged backwards. Benjamin Button? And I think he had what? Uh, like a two or three season arc for this character. It didn't get the ratings. They canceled it. And so it became, through the magic of editing, uh, a four-hour movie. Wait, so this is like a long TV series just way edited down. I don't even think we have the ending to the TV <laughs> series. It's like the first season of, of uh, it's like, uh, yes, the, the first eight episodes of what were meant to be 30. But with a tacked on ending of some sort? It's going to be great. Can't you tell how great <laughs> it is going to be? Watch out, Carrie. Coming for you, Jack Nicholson. This is going to be one of the best King movies yet. I'm watching the TV series as it aired and the VHS version of the movie and the DVD version of the movie for next week. So we will have some golden times with that. And on the donation drive this Friday, if you want a little more television or just another terrible sequel, how about 
look what happened to Rosemary's baby. And you're not going to believe it. Believe me. You cannot believe that he be fronted a rock band. He's a mine, guys. The, the Antichrist is a mine. <laughs> He's so disappointing. I got to say, if you're Satan, you got to be feeling like it just didn't work out for you. This whole Antichrist thing. You don't get Mia Farrow back, but they do get Patty Duke as Rosemary. So that's something. Yeah, same thing. I mean. You big Patty Duke fan? <laughs> well, you know it. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, there'll be some laughs on Friday. It won't be quite the classic that the original was, but hopefully, yeah, you can enjoy us for a more devilish month. And also, while you're at our website, subscribe to the Now Playing In Focus newsletter. Jason just knocking it out of the park with some behind the scenes on Now Playing, some big movie news of the week coming out every Friday. And we have another giveaway to people who are subscribed to that newsletter. If you like Two-Face, either Tommy Lee Jones or Aaron Eckhart, both of them star in a movie called Wander. Four Faces. <laughs> Wander. A thriller? A drama? What, what are we talking here? It's a murder mystery cultish thriller. Cultish because it will have a cult following or cultish <laughs> because there's actually a cult in it. When a P.I. with a troubled past is hired to investigate a suspicious death in the town of Wander, he becomes convinced the case is linked to the same conspiracy cover-up that caused the death of his daughter. It's rated R, it's from Paramount Pictures, hashtag WanderMovie. Well, we're giving away five copies of this on digital to subscribers of our In Focus newsletter. If you're subscribed to the newsletter, you're already entered. If you aren't, head to nowplayingpodcast.com, click subscribe at the top of the page, and then you'll see the form to subscribe to the newsletter and enter to win. You know, this is reminding me of the old days when you go into the video store and just rent something based on, like, the faces you see on the box. And this contest runs until December 13th, so good luck. So thank you for your support. Thank you for joining us for these 48 hours. Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And now, me and my subgirl Hematoma are going home. If I ever hear you crossing the line, I'll bust your ass. Now, Jack, now the both of us know I'm going to be an honest man from now on, right? But if I did decide to be a thief, what makes you think you can catch me? Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Tell me how great you were. I was great. Should have my big bronze. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. Let's see what we can fuck with next. Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers Films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. You better listen to him, you get your brain blown out. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. I make you feel good, you make me feel good. Now what the hell more do you want from a guy? You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. 
Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Look, man, I've been waiting for some money for a long time, all right? You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our host to review. What do you want me to do? Go out and steal for the money? Find the details on our website. Thank you for a very pleasant day! You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. You will keep your promise, right? You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Good thing your friends came when they did, Kate. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Might be a little more of a team player and a little less of a hot dog on this. Hot dog has been working real well so far. Associate produced by Jason Latham. I'm going to tell you something about this man. He's got more brains than you ever know. Got more guts than any partner I ever had. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. I have been having a very bad day. Now Playing credits read by Brock. Just yours you say it with conviction. It don't mean shit to me. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Who gives a fuck what you think? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. Did you hear a goddamn word I said? All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. I don't have time for this. I gotta go to work. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2020, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. I don't believe it. I could shot. You're done. End of story.
Here's one of Brian James' other scenes. He was supposed to be Kehoe on the stand testifying to defend Jack, but not being all that helpful. I can, I would think you'd cut it even if you weren't trying to hit 90 minutes. Here's the thing. I always want to cut Brian James. Even in Blade Runner, he was my <laughs> least favorite replicant. I didn't cry that he got killed. He made that awful Freddy Krueger ripoff, The Horror Show, where he turned into a turkey. Terrible. Remember he got thrown <laughs> in the electric trailer? Oh, come on. That's a shocker ripoff, and I love it. Oh, it's so bad. He's so bad in it. He did the worst Coen Brothers project ever, Crime Wave. I haven't even like, heard cut, of that one. Always, always cut Brian James. Roxanne! You! <laughs> 